All right, welcome to episode three of the new National Pulse podcast. I'm Raheem Kassam, editor-in-chief of thenationalpulse.com, coming to you live from Capitol Hill, a still snowy and occupied Capitol Hill. And I just want to make mention of our wonderful members and our membership program. If you're not yet a member of the National Pulse, head on over to thenationalpulse.com forward slash support. Alternatively, you can go to fundrealnews.com. And that's what we do here. And that's what we're going to do here today is talk about the real news out there. I want to start off today. In fact, we'll cover a few bases very quickly before I go to the real meat of the show. And the real meat of the show is going to be a full teardown of these impeachment documents that got sent over by Democrats this morning. This is for the trial, the second trial of the 45th President of the United States, Donald J. Trump. As you can tell, I am jacked up and there is a reason for it. We'll get into that in just a second. I'm going to bring in Natalie Winters in just a moment to talk about her scoop that's up on the National Pulse today. It's incredibly important that people understand just how in hoc the Biden regime is to the Chinese Communist Party. And we have more receipts today. We're going to bring you more detail today. And one of the things I'm going to do for guests, as long as they don't mind me doing it, as long as they don't get too many complaints of me doing it, is I'm actually just going to call them into the show live instead of doing all this post-production and cutting and, and all sorts of things. So when you hear me dialing a guest, as you'll hear in a second, that is literally me dialing the person up. I'm dialing Natalie Winters right now. And, she, and there she is. And we're live, <laughs> Natalie. I'm recording this right now. This is the first time. I'll, I'll be better next time. But good to know that I am live once I call in. Yes, that's that's the gimmick. That's the gag. That's the fun of it. It's it's as soon as as the phone rings, you're live. There's no prep. There's no time. There's no teeing up. And that's how you know we do real news here. And it's raw, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, Natalie, this story's going wild at the moment. Uh, it, it ostensibly pertains to Harvard and this Belfer Center. But what it's really about is the Biden regime and their inextricable links to the Chinese Communist Party. Tell us more. Yeah, I would say there's two levels to this story. Part of it is just, just another example of how American academia has sold out to China, uh, even though they uh, refuse to disclose the funding that they take from the Chinese government. You see them putting out pieces and putting out experts who seem to kind of take the Chinese Communist Party line on a host of issues. But what's really so worrisome about the Belfer Center, which is within Harvard Kennedy's center, which is also concerning because the Harvard Kennedy Center really is kind of the prestigious school uh, within Harvard that really trains a lot of future leaders. Uh, a lot of presidents I know have gone there. Uh, a, a lot of people, especially within the Biden uh, regime and of that establishment mindset, are, are linked and can be traced to the Kennedy Center. Uh, but I was talking on War Room earlier this morning specifically about the ties that Jake Sullivan has to the Belfer Center. And on January 30th, 2017... Well, just, just very quickly, what, what, sure. why is Jake Sullivan important? Sure. So he is the uh, national security advisor to Joe Biden at the moment. He previously held this role when Joe Biden was vice president from, I believe, 2013 to 2014, but since has been promoted. So he's essentially running the Biden regime's national security operation, informing Joe Biden uh, of what's going on, what's happening, especially you're, you're seeing the impact of this with regards to what's happening uh, in, in Burma. 
But what's so concerning about Jake Sullivan is, as I was saying, in January on January 30th, 2017, which is just 10 days uh, after the Trump administration came to power, he joined this Belfer Center as a senior fellow, ostensibly getting compensated, lecturing students, issuing papers, working, going on, on media uh, hits as a Belfer Center fellow. And this, this group, the center, has hosted conferences alongside Chinese Communist Party government and military leaders, uh, focusing on how the United States and China react to cybersecurity attacks. But it's really a bizarre approach to the issue because China is responsible for the overwhelming majority uh, of cybersecurity attacks that America experiences. Right. So essentially, Jake Sullivan and his fellow establishment uh, cronies who, who are over at the Belfer Center, and if you read the article, there's former counsel to Joe Biden when he was senator, former chief advisor to his foreign uh, policy strategy. All these people were involved with a program that, that was essentially telling the Chinese Communist Party kind of the rundown on how, how the U.S. would respond to cyber attacks, which is really just bizarre and really is concerning if that's the approach that our current national security advisor wants to take to the threat of China invading not only cyberspace and American right. cyber structures, but intellectual property was also discussed, artificial intelligence, Huawei, yep. the list goes on. Natalie, I don't want to give too much away about the stories because I want people to go to the website. Obviously, helps us if people go to the website and check out the stories in full. But it's safe to say that Jake Sullivan, uh, while he wasn't the only one, he was perhaps the most senior one in there. I know the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, was also uh, a part of that as well. But I would argue, given that Jake Sullivan has the ear of the president probably every waking minute, and there aren't a lot of waking minutes in Joe Biden's life, but every waking minute uh, that he is actually more important than the Secretary of State in this regard. Natalie, let me ask you this. Do you think this is why the Biden regime and their foreign policy apparatus and operation right now seem to be caught on the back foot on all sorts of issues, Burma being one of them, of course. Jen Psaki was just asked a question in the briefing room, uh, I think by an Israeli reporter saying, hey, Biden still hasn't called Netanyahu yet. That seems to be quite the odd thing, given, given the, Israel's proximity to the United States in a foreign policy sense. But from a foreign policy perspective, Natalie, it does seem like they're constantly on the back foot, doesn't it? Which is really bizarre because this comes after four years of the Biden uh, regime types, the establishment criticizing President Trump and his administration for not ruling properly, not really understanding uh, how to serve as president or being presidential. But I think you hit the nail on the head. And frankly, I think you can trace it back to there's and there's another story we have up on the site from a couple months ago about uh Jake Sullivan praising the United States for creating the economic system and really just an ecosystem that allowed China to rise. He calls it a, quote, success. And I think that fundamentally, Jake Sullivan and the Jake Sullivan types just have such a, a incorrect and improper assessment of how to deal with China and what China is, right? There's a reason that Jen Psaki in the press briefing room says China and never says Chinese Communist Party, right. because they're still engaging with China with that establishment mindset, the mindset of if we continue to treat China with a multilateral approach and we use our allies and we focus on you know, them uh, pursuing reform and, and liberalizing, that's the best strategy to tackle China. 
right. and, and which is a stark difference from the Trump administration. And I will say there is a reason that you should still click on the article and go and go uh, many reasons. Check it out. Be, well, many. But one of them is we linked to Avril Haines, who is the director of national intelligence. She went on a Belfer Center podcast and it's a very bizarre interview where she talks about how she landed at the CIA uh, in the uh, Obama administration. Right. And you hear kind of her background. And it's, it's a very, very interesting one to watch. So I highly recommend that. Well, we'll recommend the audience uh, watches <laughs> that right after they listen to this podcast. Natalie, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us here today on the third episode of the National Pulse podcast. We'll be bringing you on uh, more and more now that we have all the technology hooked up. And the audience should also know uh, I have more beautiful, more beautiful technology arriving soon to make this even cleaner and crisper and uh, marketed the podcast even better. So, Natalie, uh, look forward to, to, to many, many conversations with you. Thank you for having me. Talk soon. And there she goes. And that's that's how we're going to do this. I think I think it's brilliant, quite frankly. I mean, I'm not saying I'm brilliant. Well, I'd say I'm brilliant. But <laughs> what I mean is the technology is so great. I know I sound like a total boomer now. Oh, no, no. Look at you. I can bring people into the conversation using just a phone and a, and a cable. Uh, but it is really cool, actually, because I remember trying to do these sorts of things years and years ago, and it was just a nightmare, and nothing would work, and everything would fall apart. And the, just the way it's so effortless now, I think, just makes for a much more enjoyable experience for the creator as well as the consumer. And I think that's important with these things. It wouldn't be fun for you to hear me not having fun at the same time as bringing you the news. So let's, as, <laughs> as John Weaver said to somebody, let's have some fun together. All right, enough of that. Speaking of uh, having some fun together, Jen Saki. No, I know what you're thinking. Not that kind of fun. Jen Saki appears to be having fun all by herself up on that press podium. Again, not that kind of fun. Get your mind out the gutter. But she seems to be saying the most bizarre and inane things up there. And I said this. The audience that listens to The War Room and that has seen this show uh, when we did the television show, and by the way, we're going to be re returning video to this show pretty soon. I'm just buying the right stuff and setting it all up real nice so you get the best of us here. But Jen Saki, she seems to be having some fun, but nobody else kind of gets the joke. And I'm not even sure what the joke is, but I love watching her because she's so awful. And you know that we're in her head right now because she comes out yesterday for the first time fully made up, which she hadn't done before, and starts making fun of herself for saying circle back so much. You know, we were one of the first uh, networks out there, one of the first uh, broadcasts out there to show how much she ummed and awed her way through these press briefings. And we were also one of the first to put that supercut, I think Grabian put it together, of the Circle Back, the Jen Psaki Circle Back remix. And you can tell it's really getting to her because yesterday at the podium she said, well, I know conservative Twitter is going to make fun of me, but I am going to have to circle back to you on that. Jen Psaki is the press secretary for the President of the United States of America, and she's spending a lot of her time right now going through conservative Twitter to see what we think of her. Just think about that. 
So, of course, I watched Jen Psaki. The reason that uh, I'm recording this a little bit later today is because I watched Jen Psaki. She gave a long, long press conference today. Didn't say an awful lot, but she is trying to make some memes up there. Let's play. Oh, this is where I messed the technology up. Let's play for you what Jen Psaki has been saying. She's been trying to sort of meme a phrase into existence like a joke, and it's just not working. I want to play this for you now. Let's see how it goes. Such an important question. It's the plane of today. Um, I will follow up on that. I don't have. Uh, it, it is. Wow, it is. space force. It's, it's the plane of today. Um, it is an interesting question. Um, I am. Um, it's the plane of today. What does that mean? It's the plane of today. It's not an idiom. That's not a phrase. That's not something people say. But when people ask her what she thinks is like a fluff question. Or an unimportant question. That first one that you heard was uh, John Sopel from the BBC asking what happened to the Churchill bust in the Oval Office. And then the second question was from today about Space Force. And she goes, it's the plane of today. And honestly, it makes no sense. I think what she's doing, and again, I'm just, I'm just trying to interpret this. I think what she's doing is somebody asked her about Air Force One and the livery, the paintwork on Air Force One on the first day of hers in the briefing room. And I think what she's doing is making fun of that that question when the other questions get asked. So now everything's the plane of today. Are you going to ask me about the colors of the plane today? But asking a legitimate question about Space Force, which is going to be a thing that the United States needs to pioneer, unless you want the Chinese Communist Party dominating space exploration for the next 100 years, which maybe is what Jen Psaki wants, but asking a question about Space Force and being met with, wow, Space Force, it's the plane of today. That doesn't inspire confidence. And she's mocking a reporter there. Remember, the Biden people and the left were always saying how bad the Trump administration was at answering questions and taking questions from reporters and being dismissive and rude. She's mocking a reporter there. The reporter actually comes back at her and says, no, it's an interesting question. You hear her. She goes, actually, yeah, it is an interesting question. Maybe we'll play it again. And then she snapped at another reporter today. She said, I don't appreciate you putting words in my mouth. So she's being rude and she's being dismissive. I just want to play you this again. The plane of today. Let's see. Let's hear from Jen Psaki. Such an important question. It's the plane of today. Um, I will follow up on that. I don't have. Uh, it, it is. Wow. It's, Space Force. It's, it's the plane of today. Um, it is an interesting question. Um, <laughs> no, it isn't. It's an interesting question. Is the, is the pushback from the reporter, and then Jen Psaki is made to eat her words. And goes, yeah, actually, it is an interesting question. And, of course, what she does is promises to circle back on it. No, not kidding. I'm not kidding. I'm not, that's not me making fun. She promises to circle back on it. Right, to the meat of this, because we're already 15 minutes in. Where does the time go? So I am pretty unimpressed, I have to say. I'm pretty unimpressed with the response from President Trump's legal team. I suppose we were girding our loins uh, for disappointment anyway. We, we knew, given uh, the lawyer, what's his name, shown his appearance on Sean Hannity last night, that we weren't exactly expecting a robust defense of the President of the United States in the Trump legal brief that was sent out today. And it was sent out after the Democrats released theirs. So the Democrats released 80 pages of legal brief background for the second Senate trial of the President of the United States, Donald J. Trump. And the Trump team responds with 14 pages. And the Trump's four team's 14 pages 
basically says, and you can go and read it. We've got it up at thenationalpulse.com. Don't take my word for it. I'll always say that. You'll always hear me say that. Don't take my word for it. Because one of the things I pride myself on, one of the things we pride ourselves on, is actually giving you the raw documentation and evidence for yourself because you can make your own mind up. And I really don't mind if you turn around to us and say, actually, your reporting on that wasn't fair or accurate or you got this thing wrong or I disagree with your headline choice. I'm fine with that. It's the CNNs of the world that aren't fine with that. It's Jen Psaki that's not fine with that. I don't appreciate you putting words in my mouth. You know, I'm fine with it. That's why we put the raw documents up. So you can go and read it yourself. So go and read these things yourself. But the Trump document basically says that it's unconstitutional to impeach a non-sitting president of the United States. And the argument's fine and the argument's compelling because it is based in the Constitution. But the argument doesn't take the fight to the other side, which is what we would really hope for in a position like this. When you're given lemons, make lemonade and there was a Senate trial and the ability for the president's lawyers to go up there and not just make the case for why he's innocent, but also make the case for why he was being accurate and true and fair when he talks about election fraud up and down the country. That is the option that you've been given for free. Take it. Get on the offensive. Do not get on the defensive all the time. You know, this, if you're ever, if you're sitting at home and listening to this and wondering why Republicans always seem to get an atomic wedgie from the left, it's because of this mentality. It's that we are just going to defend. We are never going to go on the offensive. Even if it's sitting in front of us, it's on our plate. And I understand that these lawyers have all sorts of different uh, job business interests for their long-term careers, that they worry about presenting arguments on a case that maybe they don't even believe in. Then don't be there, okay? Just don't be there. If you, if you cannot make the arguments of the case, what is the point of you? I'm not looking for a quick acquittal here. And I know the president isn't either. That's why he dismissed the first legal team. And the Democrats come out with 80 pages of mainly pathos, but incredibly compelling pathos. If you're the outside reader, if you're somebody who's going through these briefs and documents in advance of this, like the senators should, in advance of the trial, it's well written, it's constructed, it's like oratory. It's, it's, it, it's prose. Okay. I'm going to stop rambling about it and actually start going through it. I'm not going to go through the Trump legal doc because it's 14 pages and it says the same thing on every page. It's unconstitutional to prosecute a president when he's no longer the president. And again, I'm not I'm not saying that's not true, but it's not interesting and it's not and it's not a robust defense of the case. The case is about election fraud. The case is not whether it's constitutional or not to impeach a non-sitting president. The case is about election fraud. Now, this is 80 pages long. And I don't know how long you're going to sit here and listen to me go through this stuff. But I'm going to go through a lot of it. Are you ready? Okay. We start with the introduction. This trial arises from President Donald J. Trump's incitement of insurrection against the republic he swore to protect. The House of Representatives has impeached him for the constitutional offense to protect our democracy and national security and to deter any future president who would consider provoking violence in pursuit of power. The Senate should correct, sorry, convict President Trump and disqualify him from future federal office holding. 
on January the 6th, 2021, with Vice President Michael Pence presiding. Congress assembled to perform one of its most solemn constitutional responsibilities, the counting of electoral votes for President of the United States. This ritual has marked the peaceful transfer of power in the United States for centuries. Since the dawn of the Republic, no enemy, foreign or domestic, had ever obstructed Congress's counting of the votes. No president had ever refused to accept an election result or defied the lawful processes for resolving electoral disputes until President Trump. Now that's the opening two paragraphs. That's the opening two paragraphs of the Democrats' gambit on this. And actually, I'll, I'll, I'll break my rule, what I, was, what I was saying a minute ago about not reading from the president's counterbrief on this. I will actually read from the president's counterbrief on this just to give you an idea you know, of one versus the other, what one sounds like versus the other. So I'm going to bring it up here. Trump legal brief response blasts Democrat efforts as moot and in violation of the Constitution is our headline for this up on the nationalpulse.com right now. So I'll read for you. You just heard the first two paragraphs of the Democrat one. And I'll read for you the first two paragraphs of the Trump legal response. Quote, To the Honorable, the members of the United States Senate. Yes, typo. The 45th President of the United States, Donald John Trump, through his counsel, Bruce L. Castor Jr. and David Schoen, hereby responds to the article of impeachment lodged against him by the United States House of Representatives by breaking the allegations out into eight averments and respectfully represents... Number one, the Constitution provides that the House of Representatives shall have the sole power of impeachment and that the president shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Answer one, admitted in part, denied in part, as not relevant to any matter properly before the Senate. It is admitted that the constitutional provision at Avament 1 is accurately reproduced. It is denied that the quoted provision currently applies to the 45th President of the United States since he is no longer President. The constitutional provision... <laughs> Boring. And I know the lawyers out there and I know the, the, the logical people out there are listening to that and going, well, the president's legal brief sounds much more in line with the law and the constitution and the rule of law. Yes, it does. Of course it does. I'm not denying that. I'm not denying that. Of course, the conservative side of the argument is going to be the more level-headed one. Of course. But why do we always lose when we have truth on our side? It's because we don't deploy the same tactics against the left that the left deploys against us. Pathos. Where is the journey I'm being taken on as a reader? Where are the theatrics for the media and for the people listening at home who understand that this isn't just, you know, life and history isn't just a series of bullet points about, you know, legalese. It's a story. It's rich. People need to feel like they're drawn into something. That's how the left draws people into their arguments. They tell a story. They weave a narrative. And I know there are going to be some of you out there listening to this, shaking your head and going, no, but Raheem, that's just not what we do. What has what you do achieved? What have your sticking to your principles, to sticking to your, you know, your legalese gambit, what, what does it achieve you? I'm, we're on the same side. 
I'm not saying you have to compromise your principles. I'm saying you have to you have to flourish and 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 a story around these points. These points are fine, interwoven into something larger. Let people feel like they're in the room and in the deal and part of something else that appeals to them uh, uh, in their heart and in their gut, a story about the future of the nation. Admitted in part, denied in part, is not relevant to any matter properly before the Senate. Give me a break, guys. Let's flip back to the Democrat one real quick here. In a grievous betrayal of his oath of office, President Trump incited a violent mob to attack the United States Capitol during the joint session, thus impeding Congress's confirmation of Joseph R. Biden Jr. as the winner of the presidential election. As it stormed the Capitol, the mob yelled out, President Trump sent us, hang Mike Pence, traitor, traitor, traitor. The insurrectionists assaulted police officers with weapons and chemical agents. They seized control of the Senate chamber floor, the office of the Speaker of the House and major sections of the Capitol complex. Members of their staffs were trapped and terrorized. You see what they're doing here. I mean, none of that is true, of course. They think about what they've just said. But they're saying it in such a compelling story arc that if you're listening to this, the likelihood is you are kind of a political junkie. You, you're just a nerd, okay? Like, you are, and so am I, and that's okay. But for the audience out there that aren't nerds, but are still kind of listening to this with one ear, listening to the television or some live stream, they'll hear this. And this will sound compelling to them. And they'll hear the other side, the Trump defense. Let's, let's get into the next part of it. Admitted in part, denied in part, and denied is not relevant to any matter properly before the Senate. It is admitted. The phrases from Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution are correctly replicated in Avament 2. It is denied that the 45th President in the United States engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States. The 45th President believes and therefore others that... As a private citizen, the Senate has no jurisdiction. It's just tedious. It's just tedious. And we saw this at the last uh, impeachment as well. For those of you that were listening to War Room Impeachment all, all back then, is I said at the time, I said over and over again, we need somebody up there. And finally, you got some, I think it was out of Pam Bondi, who got up there and gave some kind of rhetorical flourish to what she was saying and cared about what she was saying. That's why I want somebody like Phil Klein in that Senate chamber doing this trial, because he speaks with integrity and he speaks with conviction. And you can hear in his voice that he cares about the issue. And that's what the public who is going to listen to this cares about you wouldn't care or listen to this podcast if i were just simply presenting you know a, a, a bullet point after bullet point of factual things just just i am going to read you a fact now now i am going to read you another fact here is another fact for you to in you know internalize no, it just doesn't work the reason you're listening to this the reason you're still listening to this is because you can hear in my voice what matters to me. And then you feel like you buy into it too. And sometimes you need those dramatic pauses. But listen to those things that they're alleging in the introduction to the Democrat legal brief. President Trump sent us, hang Mike Pence, traitor, traitor, traitor. And you just think from the outset, wow. That is just an incredible amount of lies. Not that there weren't people saying that. There may well have been people saying that. I think there's even video of people there saying that. But the idea that the ordinary Trump supporter that was there at the ellipse that day, again, broke 
you know, the space-time continuum appeared in front of the Capitol building in advance of the president even concluding his speech and then chanted, President Trump sent us hang Mike Pence, traitor, traitor, traitor. Nonsense. A tissue of lies. But, but a well-sold bill of lies, quite frankly. Very well-sold. They seized control of the Senate chamber floor. Uh, have you guys seen the video of the climate change protester horned shaman seizing the Senate chamber? Have you seen that video? He literally calmly walks through the door and a police officer is in the chamber with him and he walks up to the podium, gavels himself in or whatever. And the police officer says to him, hey, uh, I couldn't convince you to uh, to leave, could I? And he goes, nah, man, we're going to stay here for just like a minute and chill. I'll make sure that nobody you know, messes the place up, and the police officer goes, okay, cool, because, like, you know, this is the sacred place. Sacred. Sacred. Seized control of the Senate chamber! Members and their staffs were trapped and terrorized. This is AOC, you know, uh, crying on her live stream last night. Trapped and terrorized. And then they go, five people, including a Capitol Police officer, died. Yeah, I know a Capitol Police officer died. I know that his family said he didn't want his death used as a political tool. And here it is on the very first page of the Democrats' impeachment trial brief being used as a political tool. That is disgusting. That is dishonoring his life, his family's wishes, and his death. But that's the Democrats for you. They don't care. Ah, his family don't want us to use his death as a political football. Screw them and screw you. And how did the other four people die, by the way? How can we never hear more about that? Five people died, including one Capitol Police officer. What about the other four? How did the other four die? At the hands, at the hands of the state. Let's keep going through this because I really do think it's worth, I really think it's worth you you hearing this thing. Because I know 80 pages, and it's very small text, by the way. I know 80 pages is kind of too much for, I mean, I know you guys out there are families that you've got to feed and things that you have to do in your lives. You can't sit and go through 80 pages of Democrat rhetoric for a second impeachment trial. But I do think it's worth me going through some of these highlights with you. Let's consider the next page. Quote, but every single court to consider the president's attacks on the outcome of the election rejected them, end quote. Well, they rejected to hear them. Let me read you that again. Every single court to consider the president's attacks on the outcome of the election rejected them. No, they rejected to hear the president's attacks on the outcome of the election. Attacks. Again, I'm using their words. Attacks. They rejected to hear the evidence. They didn't want the day in court for President Trump and for his lawyers. Oh, you got a technical issue in your filing. Uh, this one doesn't have standing here. Oh, I don't know. This one doesn't look like it has enough evidence for my liking. Right. 
But you see, again, they're, they're weaving a narrative together and it's a very compelling one if you're not in the weeds on this. I'm going to carry on, skipping ahead. By the day of the rally, President Trump had spent months using his bully pulpit to insist that the joint session of Congress was the final act of a vast ploy to destroy America. As a result, and as had been widely reported, the crowd was armed, angry, and dangerous. Before President Trump took the stage, his lawyer called for trial by combat. His son warned Republican legislators against finalizing the election results. Quote, we're coming for you. Finally, President Trump appeared behind a podium bearing the presidential seal. Here's one of my favorite parts. I have this, uh, have this highlighted in my copy of this. Surveying the tense crowd before him, President Trump whipped it into a frenzy, exhorting followers to fight like hell or you're not going to have a country anymore. Think about the scene they're painting there. Amazing, actually, writing for, you know, uh, what, what would be a lawyer writing this. Surveying the tense crowd before him. You can, you can kind of even put yourself there and, you know, President Trump's looking over the sea of people. And it says, he whipped it into a frenzy, exhorting followers to fight like hell. Whipped it into a frenzy. Would this be like the media whipping people into a frenzy over the Russia collusion stuff? Would this be like the left whipping 450-odd thousand people into a frenzy to march on Washington, D.C.? Would this be the frenzy that uh, you know was whipped into the guy that shot Steve Scalise? Would this be the frenzy across the country when Black Lives Matter protested and rioted and pillaged cities, burned them to the ground? Would this be the Antifa frenzy at the Chaz? Is this the frenzy outside of Lafayette Park? Or are those all sorts of different types of frenzies that don't require investigation and that don't require impeachment and that we aren't allowed to know who incited those things leave alone hold them to account for their actions different frenzy right different frenzy president trump was reportedly delighted by the mayhem says who i'm looking i'm looking for a for a footnote here President Trump was reportedly delighted by the mayhem. No citation. Just slip that one in there. And here's here's why I'm disappointed. Not just with the boring legalese of the of, of the response from President Trump's legal team, but because you can see what I'm doing here is I'm tearing down the arguments one by one from the Democrat side, and it's remarkably easy to do. So why didn't you do it? And why aren't we seeing that happening in real time right now from the lawyers around President Trump and his spokesman? President Trump himself could easily dispatch all of this stuff. That's where my frustration comes. I know there's a lot of you out there who's like, ah, don't worry, they've got it in hand, they know what they're doing. Think about where we are. I'm going to skip ahead here a little bit more as well. But every single court to consider... Oh, no, we did that one already. Hang on. Let's skip ahead again. Only hours after his mob first breached the Capitol did President Trump release a video statement calling for peace. It's a very telling part, this one. Let me, read, let me go back and read you the run-up to this. 
When congressional leaders begged President Trump to send help or urge his supporters to stand down, he instead renewed his attacks on the vice president and focused on lobbying senators to challenge the election results. Only hours after his mob first breached the Capitol did President Trump release a video statement calling for peace. So remember, he was delighted at the mayhem, no citation, and he waited hours to issue a video calling for peace. Is that really what happened? The people paying attention that day to what happened, is that really what happened? Because I remember, and I was out on the streets of Washington, D.C., I actually periscoped my walk from Capitol Hill to downtown and then downtown back up to Capitol Hill. And by the way, I didn't see any frenzied mobs with pitchforks and torches and bricks. I must I go back and look at my periscopes. I must have spoken to a thousand people out there that day. Passed by tens of thousands. I didn't see any frenzied people screaming treason at the Capitol. On video. Don't take my word for it. On video. Go watch it. Especially go and watch it if you want to call me out. Come on, let's have it. This is the wonderful thing about the National Pulse. and They can net. They never, ever, ever come to us and say oh your reporting is fake or false or you need to issue a correction or change your headline or whatever they say oh, you're fascist you're racist you're fake news okay fine show me where i'm fake news no no i no, can't do that no i'm not gonna do that why because you can't go and watch go and watch my streams from that day see for yourself only hours after his mob first breached the Capitol did President Trump release a video statement calling for peace. He issued a video statement calling for peace when he learned what had happened. Remember, the reporting on the ground that day was spotty. The communication networks were spotty. There was no way for the president to know what was truly taking place there. All we had on screen in front of us, we were live in the afternoon with this show. All we had on the screen in front of us was two videos that were in circulation. One of the door being banged at the front of the Capitol building, bang, bang, bang. And then one of people kind of streaming in and we were playing those on a loop. And that's what all the news networks were playing on a loop. The president got secret access. And by the way, why is there no mention here? Hold on. They say he didn't. Congressional leaders begged President Trump to send help. What are you talking about? The Capitol Police was requesting extra help in advance of this, and they were told no by Mayor Bowser. They were told no by military commanders. They were told no by the National Guard chiefs who said they didn't like the optics of it. They were told no by the bureaucrats who were in charge, and the bureaucrats now don't want to have to answer for it. Instead, they want to put up a fence, a permanent fence around the Capitol, instead of ascertaining correctly that it was actually their mismanagement and their failure of intelligence that led to what had happened. A fence might physically keep people out of the people's house. That might physically work. But Capitol Hill is a residential neighborhood. It always has been. It's always been a great primary feature of the U.S. Capitol that you could just walk up to it. You could walk in as a normal person. You could file in when there's somebody lying in state. You can go and sled down the hill 
on the Capitol grounds when it snows. You go see the Christmas tree. All of these great traditions that they're throwing out of the window now and erecting their new permanent fence because uh, Yogananda Pittman, the new head of Capitol Police, Biden donor who goes by several different names, by the way, kind of weird for a police officer to have aliases. Biden donor, I checked it myself on the FEC website. She wants to erect the wall around the Capitol premises because guess what? What that does is it gets people away from having to deal with the truth of the matter, which is a failure of intelligence and a failure to act on that intelligence. How do you have pipe bombs placed outside the RNC and DNC the night before the most heavily policed area in the country. How does that happen? For those of you that don't know Washington, D.C. and the layout, the Capitol building is basically next to the RNC and the DNC. They are within second steps walk from the Capitol grounds. And and those areas are crawling with police all the time. Not just now, all the time. That's why people like living here is you've got police all over the place. It's secure, it's safe. A failure, a failure, an institutional failure occurred that day. And there's been no call for a proper, full, public, transparent investigation into that. No, erect the permanent wall, ruin the neighborhood, and allow the last people on the planet to walk up those capital steps to be the very same people you call terrorists, insurrectionists. That's that's the history you're building here in real time by allowing that to happen. Think about that. Think about what that says to the rest of the world. Think about what that says in the course of human history, what that will say. President Trump put a video up calling for peace and Twitter took it down immediately. I don't know if all of you know that because it was up for such a short amount of time, but I remember exactly where I was. I was walking back home from downtown Washington, D.C. because you couldn't get a car that day. The streets were all blocked off. All the streets were, were, you know, downtown. You couldn't take a car. So I walked. Got a lot of steps in that day. And I was walking back from Pennsylvania Avenue, along Pennsylvania Avenue, up towards the Capitol. And I was watching this video from President Trump telling people to go home in peace. And then it disappeared. So in the Democrat legal brief, they say he took too long to put the video up. They make no mention of the fact the video was immediately taken down. So even if the people, the troublemakers there on the day, were going to whip out their phones in mid-riot and check Twitter for a message from the president, maybe put their head, pop their AirPods in in mid-riot. I mean, this is, I'm just saying, this is what we're being asked to believe here. This is why this is. I'm so incredulous about this. This is a nonsense. It's a nonsense narrative that's being forced on us. And the Trump legal team should go through this just as I am doing on the floor of the Senate and mock and deride these people. Go through it line by line over and over again. And say, hey, sorry, what you're saying is, what you're saying is that the QAnon horned shaman, climate change activist, was whipping his phone out, 
to check Twitter for notifications from the president in real time while he stormed the Senate chamber. That's what that's what you are and you and then Twitter took the video down, but still it's the president's fault. That's what you want us to believe. It's amazing. It's amazing, isn't it? When it's put like that, it's amazing. Please share this podcast with other people. <laughs> Let them hear it like this. Because I don't think that anybody has gone through this stuff yet. And I'm 45 minutes into this show right now. And I am three pages in to the 88-0 page Democrat legal brief. We better move on fast. President Trump's... Ah, now, good bit here. The nation will indeed remember January 6, 2021 and President Trump's singular responsibility for that tragedy. That's a really good bit. It really is. Why? Why is that a really good bit? The nation will indeed remember January 6, 2021, and President Trump's singular responsibility for that tragedy. It's a good bit because they say singular responsibility for the tragedy, which means that all of the other people that they've charged whether it's the actual people who broke in, whether it's the actual people who beat up a police officer, whether it's the actual people who put pipe bombs down, whether it's the actual congressmen and senators who they call insurrectionists and terrorist sympathizers and all that, whether it's people like us in the media who have been reporting on the election fraud, whether it's Rudy Giuliani or Donald Trump Jr. who they name in the very first page of this. No, they suddenly say in this one line, they, on page three, they suddenly say President Trump's singular responsibility. In one fell swoop, the, de- the Democrat lawyers have let everybody else that they're trying to charge with this off the hook. That's what they've done. That's amazing. That is an amazing own goal. His singular responsibility. And of course, the very next part is incredibly important for the people who are concerned with the future of the conservative movement, the future of the Republican Party. And I use the Republican Party as a secondary concern because I really don't care about political parties. I just don't. I never have. I joined the Conservative Party in the UK when I left university, and as soon as I realised that David Cameron was not going to do what he promised to do as leader of the Conservative Party, I changed to the UK Independence Party, to UKIP. Why? Because my loyalty is to the country and not to the political party. I remember the Conservative Party conference in in the UK. We have an annual conference every year of, of political parties. Every party has its own conference every year can be a lot of fun, can be very raucous, can be quite debauched, actually. And I remember this chap, his name's Mark Clark. Total party apparatchik. Total, total, you know, fealty to the leader at all costs. Could have been in the CCP, you know? Would have been, would have done great under Stalin. And then been disappeared. He prodded me in my chest violently and he said, you're finished in politics. I said, I'm finished in the Conservative Party. There's a difference. And for those of you who care about the future of the Conservative movement, and as a secondary to that, the Republican Party, this part is very important. It says, quote, In the words of Representative Liz Cheney, 
the House Republican Conference chair. And it goes to quote her. It says, The President of the United States summoned this mob, assembled the mob, and lit the flame of this attack. Everything that followed was his doing. None of this would have happened without the president. The president could have immediately and forcefully intervened to stop the violence. He did not. There has never been a greater betrayal by a president of the United States of America to his office and his oath to the Constitution. Citation. Liz Cheney. I will vote to impeach the president January 12, 2021. Do you want anybody within the conservative movement who the Democrats can use as their first first footnote in their Trump impeachment legal brief. You want to know who number two is? You don't know. You want to know who their second citation is? Because I'm, I'm about to get to it. And I love this, by the way. What we get onto in just a second, but but peep this as they say right here's the second citation follows immediately after liz cheney's thing and it says senate minority leader mitch mcconnell recently affirmed that the mob was fed lies and provoked by the president so ask yourselves this do you want to be part of a movement of an organization and do you want to vote for a party with people like liz cheney and mitch mcconnell at the helm just asking and if you don't let them know. Let them know by stopping your donations. Let them know, by the way, by sending an on empty envelope to the RNC and saying this would have a check in it if Mitch McConnell and Liz Cheney weren't leaders of this feckless half assed political party that claims to be a conservative party, that claims to stand up for the Constitution, that claims it had Donald Trump's back the entire way when he was president and he forced a victory over Hillary Clinton when no other of those candidates on stage in 2015 could have. You know it and I know it. None of them would have beaten her except Donald Trump he gave this country a new lease on life and this is the way that two of the most senior Republicans are now repaying him on page three and four of the Democrat legal brief and of course wonderfully on the same page they go on to say this is not a partisan matter this is a partisan document it is a partisan document pulling from the Democrat Party using rhinos, Democrats dressed up as Republicans, Republicans in name only, like Liz Cheney and Mitch McConnell, to further their point. Oh, this is a partisan document, all right. Oh, this is a partisan matter. It is called the Uniparty. And that ain't even the end of the introduction. Only after President Trump is held to account for his actions can the nation move forward with unity of purpose and commitment to the Constitution. And only then will future presidents know that Congress stands vigilant in its defense of our democracy. That's the end of the introduction. And even in those last two lines, so much to unpack, right? Let's do it. Only after President Trump is held to account for his actions can the nation move forward with unity of purpose and commitment to the Constitution. So only after we have prosecuted an elected president for exercising his First Amendment rights to say what he believed about the election, only after we've prosecuted that man 
can the nation move forward with unity of purpose? Unity of purpose. Kind of Orwellian. And then the second part to that. And only then will future presidents know that Congress stands vigilant in its defense of our democracy. So again, only if you get a conviction of an opposition party politician, of an anti-establishment politician, will you move forward with purpose, unity of purpose, and only then will people know that Congress stands vigilant in defense of democracy. Are you telling me that Congress can't stand vigilant in defense of democracy without prosecuting political opponents? Because that sounds a lot like a, a, a tyrannical regime to me. That sounds a lot like what third world countries do, what African banana republics and the Chinese Communist Party does, is prosecute and persecute political opponents. Sounds a lot like what Vladimir Putin does is persecute political opposition. And only then, only then, can we move forward in defense of our democracy. It's a republic. Just had to add that little uh, little bitchy comment at the end there. Then we move on to the statement of facts. And we're only on page five. Then we move on to the statement of facts. And I will wrap this soon. Because I don't necessarily intend for you to listen to over an hour of me going on about this. But I just w I want you to understand like, this is this is how much it takes. This is how long it takes. And I've gone through this already. You know, I've probably been through the first 15, 20 pages of this already. And I'm still stuck with you on page five here. Because I am dissecting the arguments one by one. But think about the kind of teams you have to have and legal minds you have to have in order to do this quickly enough for them to be able to present these arguments at the impeachment trial. And if there's one thing you can do that I hope will assist them in doing this, it is get, send this podcast to tweet it under... Uh, anybody who's representing Trump or anybody who's involved with Trump, send it into all the groups you're part of, the Telegram groups and all of that. Make sure it gets to the people who need to send it to your congressmen, send it to your senators, send it to your state representatives. Tell them to, hey, listen to this guy. He actually knows what he's talking about. Before a single vote, before a single voter, rather, cast a ballot in the 2020 presidential election, President Trump made it clear that he had no intention of abiding by the verdict of the American people. That's the next step. That's the next part of this statement of facts. President Trump refuses to accept the results of the 2020 election. And it goes on. It goes on. But I want you to think about this. I want you to think about who actually said that we shouldn't accept the results of the 2020 election. So we've got to have a massive legal operation. I know the Biden campaign is working on that. We have to have poll workers, and I urge people who are able to uh, be a poll worker. We have to have our own uh, teams of people to counter the, the force of intimidation that the Republicans and Trump are going to put outside polling places. It, th this is a big organizational challenge, but at least we know more about what they're going to do. And 
you know, Joe Biden should not concede under any circumstances because I think this is going to drag out. And eventually, I do believe he will win if we don't give an inch. Joe Biden should not concede under any circumstances was the words of Hillary Clinton. But remember, the Democrat legal briefs says here, before a single voter cast a ballot in the 2020 presidential election, President Trump made it clear that he had no intention of abiding by the verdict of the American people. When did, when did Hillary Clinton say what she said? Oh, wait, that was August 24th. August 24th, 2020. But the Democrat legal brief cites an article from Politico, September 24th, 2020. The nine most notable comments Trump has made about accepting the election results. You can't have it both ways, Democrats. You can't have Hillary Clinton out there, your former presidential candidate, doyen of your movement, saying Joe Biden shouldn't concede under any circumstances, and then go, whoa, President Trump said he wouldn't concede under any circumstances. Crazy, right? <laughs> you cannot have it both ways. What's amazing? What's amazing? You go through this. You continue going through this. And I'm going to clock off in just a second. But there are so many avenues. There are so many beautiful, wide, open, gaping, open goals for the president's legal team to pursue here. So I really hope they do not stick to the legal brief as they have laid it out. I really hope they go after the arguments made in this Democrat legal brief. And I'll leave you with uh, some of the thoughts I had from page seven here before I have to clock off and run right across the road to the war room for another afternoon show. President Trump accused some combination of corrupt state officials, fraudulent voters, doctored voting machines, and unspecified shadowy actors, end quote. So not Congress then. And yet your claim is he incited against Congress. They talk about his challenges were in Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. So quite specific then. He's he actually, you know, if you were making spurious allegations about voter fraud you just go all over the place you'd talk you'd start talking about california and hawaii and wyoming and everything but they admit that his case was quite specific and they say but all of these suits were dismissed save for one marginal pennsylvania suit that did not affect the outcome there again an admission that people did not have their day in court I love this quote. I'll leave you with this. It was never clear who President Trump blamed for this asserted fraud. It was never clear. It was in, in their words, it was never clear. So not clear that he incited against Congress then. I said I was leaving with that. I gotta go I gotta do one more. Next page. 
President Trump tweeted that our highest court is totally incompetent and weak on the massive election fraud that took place in the 2020 presidential election. They're talking about the U.S. Supreme Court. President Trump tweeted that our highest court was totally incompetent and weak on the massive election fraud that took place in the 2020 presidential election. But there wasn't an attack on the Supreme Court. The claim is that President Trump was singularly responsible because of the narrative that he weaved over so many weeks, over so many days, and that this resulted in the institutions of the United States states being attacked specifically the u.s capital and then they go on to say that it was never clear who he targeted who he alleged was responsible for the fraud and then they go on to say but it was clear that he attacked the supreme court but there wasn't an attack on the supreme court he pursued this agenda through tweets phone calls and meetings with officials whoa tweets phone calls and meetings with officials. There is the fraud right there, ladies and gentlemen. That is, I mean, open and shut case. Meetings and tweets. Meetings and tweets. What an insurrectionist. What a wild, wild guy that Donald Trump is. Right, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to get this show up very soon. I thank you for tuning in and for listening. And listen, if you value the work I do sitting here, not just in talking to you, that's my pleasure. But if you value the work that we do here, going through these documents, going through all of the critical paths and getting into the detail on the Harvard Belfer Center with Natalie Winters, as you heard right at the top of the show, and monitoring uh, Miss Circle back Jen Psaki, and going through the documents and the detail, then please consider becoming either a member of the nationalpost.com forward slash support to get cool free stuff, including private discord chat channel with yours truly i'm in there every day and if not if you don't want to become a member you don't, you're not comfortable with people having your details and whatnot you can go to the nationalpulse.com forward slash donate you can just donate once off we even accept bitcoin if that's your pleasure nowadays i thank you for tuning in we will uh, we'll be back again tomorrow with another national pulse podcast make sure you're sharing it with friends like subscribe leave a comment all of that good stuff subscribe on all of the apps help us get up the charts help more people find this show i'm raheem kasam and i will speak to you again tomorrow